Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley and on behalf of myself and executive producer Kim Jack Riley, we welcome you. In this episode, a wee bit of weirdness going on. Republicans in Congress honor the January 6th insurrectionists. Not all Republicans, but a few. Wait, what? At least 37 people, mostly students, have been killed after a suspected militants raided a school in western Uganda. When will people stop targeting the young? Southern Baptists move to oust women from the leadership of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. What's next? Taking away the right to vote? An attorney for the Oath Keepers has been deemed not mentally fit to stand trial in a case stemming from the January 6th insurrection. And former President Barack Obama speaks out on black Republicans who say race doesn't matter anymore. A lot on the plate, so let's get started. Let's start with the ridiculous. Not only on the same day, but the same hour, a certain former president was being arraigned in Miami, a gaggle of House extremists were honoring the seditionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Under the guise of a hearing, the likes of Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Laurel and Hardy of the Congress, it seems, were lauding the very people who wanted to hang some of their colleagues. And they weren't the only ones who participated in this charade of a so-called hearing. So-called witnesses were brought forward to testify about the tyranny of those who were trying to bring January 6th seditionists to justice. Several invoked the name of Ashley Babbitt, who was shot dead by police while trying to breach the last line of defense, keeping lawmakers safe. Little or nothing was said about Roseanne Boylan, the woman trampled to death by the very people she was there supporting. The hypocrisy of these folks is astonishing. Just a tidbit as food for thought. Matt Gates convened the hearing, even though he is not a committee chair. Remember, committee chairs are the ones that are supposed to convene hearings. He didn't have that power. No matter. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy let him put together all the trappings of a hearing. That would be because he's trying to hold on to his gig as Speaker, and he needs the Matt Gateses and Mar Marjorie Taylor Greens of this Congress to help him cling to power. What continually amazes me is the relatively small number of people who can hijack 435 members of the House of Representatives. There's one guy, a Republican from Louisiana, who uses QAnon codes to describe Trump's current situation. Another Florida representative introduced a privileged resolution to censure and fine Congressman Adam Schiff of California for leading Trump's first impeachment. The proposed fine, $16 million. That's one six, not six L. It thankfully died before it got very far, but you get the grift. Uh, I'm sorry, get the drift. Consider also that 11 Count them, 11 House Republicans have sponsored impeachment legislation against President Joe Biden. Not that any of them will necessarily go, necessarily go anywhere, but you've got to act tough for the home folks. Under normal circumstances, the House Speaker would be the one who sat these loonies down and told them to cut it out and stop acting like legislators. 
not fools. Not so Kevin McCarthy, for the reason previously mentioned. To be both power-hungry and gutless is an amazing feat. So feckless is this man that he's already trying to renege on the debt ceiling deal he agreed to with President Biden, count him, two weeks ago. I know politics is all about compromise, but this is ridiculous. One wonders what the right-wing fringe in the House would have to do to earn a rebuke from this speaker. I know most people are focused on next year's presidential sweepstake, but as that happens, a house cleaning is needed in the House of Representatives. What we are seeing and hearing is beyond ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous, did you hear about the attorney for the Oath Keepers who has been found unfit to stand trial on charges stemming from January 6th? Her name is Kenny Sorrell, um, Kelly Sorrell, I should say. And in addition to being the right-wing fringe group's mouthpiece, that's the Oath Keepers, she's the girlfriend of that organization's boss, Stuart Rhodes. I'm not making this up. From the Washington Post, a direct quote, U.S. District Judge Amit P. Mehta of D.C. postponed Sorrell's trial indefinitely, finding, based on reports by defense and government medical experts, that she was suffering from a mental disease or defect, rendering her unable to understand the proceedings against her or to assist properly in her own defense. The federal judge postponed her trial indefinitely, until it can be determined if she can be made fit. Now, this woman's links to Trump and the right-wing fringe is interesting. Very, very interesting, as a matter of fact. The nature of her infirmity, first of all, has not yet been made public. We do know, however, that she faces four charges in connection to January 6th. She was also a volunteer, was Sorrell, with lawyers for Trump during the 2020 election campaign. Now, it's interesting to note that on the day this woman was arrested, Donald Trump, at a rally, where else, asserted he'd issue full pardons and issue apologies to those convicted of January 6th offenses. That would include Sorrell's boyfriend, none other than Stuart Rhodes. Up next, at least 37 people, most of them students, were killed by alleged militants at a school in Uganda. When will this targeting of the young and vulnerable cease? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. Why does it seem suspected militants so often target schools and target students around the world? Such was the case last week when a school dormitory was set ablaze in western Uganda near the border with Democratic Republic of Congo. A spokesman for the Ugandan government says its military is pursuing the suspected murderers, which it says are members of a group called Allied Democratic Forces. They're described as an extremist group, and believe me, if they torch a dormitory and kill 37 people, they qualify as extremists. 
and they supposedly operate both in Uganda and Congo. A human rights organization based in the U.S. estimates that more than 3,800 people have been killed by the ADF since 2017, both in Congo and in Uganda. This type of atrocity, quite frankly, doesn't attract a great deal of attention from Western media or from Western governments. The U.S. mission in Uganda put out a statement that could well have been issued in the wake of dozens of school shootings in America. At the end of the day, this kind of carnage must be stopped by the nations of Africa. The African Union, which replaced the Organization of African Unity, still exists. Are their hands tied in the face of this and numbers of other atrocities perpetrated in the name of religious militants? The goals of the ADF appear rather vague. However, one thing is for sure. They commit these types of crimes because they know the world doesn't know who they are, what they're fighting for, and what needs to be done to beat them. There may well be more to this story than the Western narrative. There usually is. Let Africa create its own narrative and its own solution to this sickening, and I do emphasize the word sickening, problem. Next up, why is America's largest Protestant denomination trying to purge women from the ranks of its leadership? This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Like many other religious groups, they've had to confront declining numbers of adherents and internal strife. So how to explain their recent annual convention in New Orleans? A hard right faction of the SBC is trying to purge its leadership of women. They've already thrown out Pastor Rick Warren's Saddleback Church over its appointment of a female pastor. Sounds like heresy? If this sounds like it harkens back to an earlier, less enlightened period of religion in America, it absolutely does. The ultra-conservative faction of the SBC attempts to use the Bible as a rationale for this nonsense. During the convention, an all-male panel came together to discuss the role of women in the denomination's leadership. I'm going to say that again so you understand and let it sink in. During the course of this convention in New Orleans last week, an all-male panel came together to discuss the role of women in the SBC's leadership. Suffice to say, it didn't go well for women in those positions. Now you might say, what's this got to do with me? I'm not a Southern Baptist. If they want to act like Neanderthals, that's up to them. I say, not exactly. These are the very same people who supported Donald Trump knowing he was a serial philanderer and worse. Their rationale was political, not religious. They wanted a Supreme Court that would gut Roe v. Wade, and that's just what Trump gave them. Long story short, they want their religious views to apply to everyone in America. 
I've mentioned this before in past episodes, and I don't want to say I told you so, but I have mentioned it before. These folks are scared of a changing America where the rights of blacks, gays, women, and transgender people are respected. If they only wanted this for themselves, that would be one thing. They don't. This ultra-right faction of the Southern Baptists and their fellow travelers plan to play a major role in next year's elections. It's not just about who was elected president. They want a sizable majority in both houses of Congress, which would give them a firm grip on all three branches of government. Trust me on this. You've been warned. And finally, assuming race is America's third rail, how do we approach people who say racism is no longer a big deal? What about if those same people are running for president? The issue of race in the 21st century can be distilled simply by a single poll. A Washington Post-Ipsos poll released last week shows 8 in 10 black Americans think the nation's economic system is stacked against them. By contrast, only 4 in 10 whites and 2 in 10 Republicans feel the same way. This is significant because there are at least two people of color running for president as Republicans, and both Senator Tim Scott and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley seek to downplay the significance of race in America. They point to their own success as proof. Now, this is not new. Blacks have been running for president as Republicans, and I'm talking about the current iteration of the Republican Party, not the 19th century iteration of the Republican Party. They've been running for a while now. Witness the unsuccessful runs of Alan Keyes, who I had a chance to interview very briefly out in San Diego way back in 1995. Alan Keyes is saying some of the same things that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are saying now. He was saying it years ago. Conservatives loved him, but they wouldn't vote for him. The assertion that a Scott or Haley represents some new epoch in race relations is about the only way a person of color can run as a Republican and have any hope of success. And by the way, nobody thinks either of these two, Scott or Haley, will end up being the nominee of the GOP. And yet, their assertions bear a striking resemblance to former President Barack Obama's 2004 statement that his success was an indicator of how far the nation had progressed on race. And Barack Obama acknowledged that in a podcast with his former aide, David Axelrod. But he says there is a bit of a difference between what he was saying in 2004 and what these folks are saying today. He says he was not trying to downplay the significance of race. He was just saying that his ascension showed that the nation had progressed on race. Two very different things. Now, one thing we need to be very clear about when we talk about Obama, when we talk about Scott, when we talk about Haley, they are all politicians. There is no way any group of people should measure collective success on an issue as fraught as race by looking at the individual success of a politician, regardless of party. 
In other words, to me, it doesn't matter if it's Barack Obama or Tim Scott. Black people, people of color, should not measure our collective success based on what they've been able to achieve. I love that they've been able to achieve what they've done, but that doesn't mean that black folks, as they used to say back in the day, ain't catching hell. Now, progress, rather than success, should be measured. This is just my own personal opinion. Progress should be measured by closing the yawning gaps that still exist between the races. I'm talking about things like economic outcomes, education, and most of all, opportunity. That's what racial progress embodies. And see, when I say that, I'm saying, why don't we measure politicians based not on rhetoric, not on how successful they think they are, but instead how they have worked to try and close some of these gaps. How about a politician comes and says, and I've said this before on the radio back when I was on the radio, how come a politician can't come before the public and say, you know what, we're gonna take, if, if 48% of black children read at or above grade level, we're gonna work to make that 48%, 75%. That, folks, is progress on a collective scale. If there's a gap between the earnings of white and black Americans, we're going to work to narrow that gap, whatever it may be, narrow it, cut it in half. That, ladies and gentlemen, is progress. And another thing, there's an odd contradiction in how America treats race. When George Floyd was killed, it was the fault of one cop. When a Justice Department report says the Minneapolis Police Department is rife with systemic racism in its treatment of people of color, it's the fault of one police department, not racism that permeates policing itself. One wonders if any of this will ever change fundamentally. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.